Thank you, brother. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. I'll be referring to all three of the scripture texts that were read earlier for us, Proverbs 5, the second half of Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7. That which for Vronsky had been almost a whole year, the one absorbing desire of his life, replacing all his old desires, that which for Anna had been an impossible, terrible, and even for that reason more entrancing dream of bliss, that desire had been fulfilled. He stood before her, pale, his lower jaw quivering, and besought her to to be calm, not knowing how or why. Anna, Anna, he said with a choking voice, Anna, for pity's sake. But the louder he spoke, the lower she dropped, her once proud and gay, now shame-stricken head. And she bowed down and sank from the sofa where she was sitting, down on the floor at his feet. She would have fallen on the carpet if he had not held her. My God, forgive me, she said, sobbing, pressing his hands to her bosom. She felt so sinful, so guilty, that nothing was left her but to humiliate herself and beg forgiveness. And as now there was no one in her life but him, to him she addressed her prayer for forgiveness. Looking at him, she had a physical sense of her humiliation And she could say nothing more. He felt what a murderer must feel when he sees the body he has robbed of life. That body robbed by him of life was their love, the first stage of their love. There was something awful and revolting in the memory of what had been bought at this fearful price of shame. Shame at their spiritual nakedness crushed her and infected him. Well, thus wrote 19th century author Leo Tolstoy in his famous novel, Anna Karenina. And the passage I just read finds two of the main characters, Anna and Vronsky, after they have first begun an adulterous affair. A Tolstoy's novel, if you've read it, captures grippingly the point made in our passages from Proverbs this morning which is that sexual immorality leads to death. Sexual immorality leads to death. Uh, This morning we're looking at all of Proverbs 5, the last half of Proverbs 6, and all of Proverbs 7. I've chosen to preach these texts together because they share a focus on sexual immorality. Uh, Because the literary context is a father speaking to a son in the first nine chapters of Proverbs Uh, These chapters speak about sexual immorality as a temptation to a forbidden woman or to an adulteress. Uh, I think we're right to apply the principles that we see here to any kind of sexual temptation uh, that comes to anyone of of either gender. Uh, These three passages are quite a big section of text, and you might have noticed as they were read out, uh, they repeat a lot of the same things. And actually, that's part of the point. I've asked if the tech team can project for just a moment the entire text of Proverbs 1 to 9 there. Uh, So 
all of that that's highlighted in red, all the words in red are the father speaking to his son about sex. So roughly 25% of the prologue of Proverbs is devoted to warnings about sexual immorality. What does that say about this issue's importance for living wisely? You know, when you read the introduction to the book of Proverbs, thank you, you can take the slide down, thank you. Uh, When you read the introduction to the book of Proverbs, uh, you find that Proverbs offers to teach us to live skillfully, to live wisely. I hear that and I think, wonderful, I'd love to live more skillfully. I'd love to learn some productivity life hacks, and I'd like to be a better conversationalist, right? I want to live skillfully. What does Proverbs have for me in the way of witty comebacks? But have you noticed that much more than that, the wise father of Proverbs 1 to 9 sees that the ability to see sin clearly is essential to skillful living. You notice that when Proverbs is talking to us about sin, it doesn't say, don't you be sinning or I'll hit you with this shame stick, right? Proverbs appeals to us. It says, son, my son, open your eyes and see by faith that there's no life in sin. Be persuaded by my words that wisdom's ways are the ways of pleasantness that her paths are peace, and that sin leads to death and sorrow. Friend, listen, the world, the internet, Netflix, social media, the Springfield Mall, your own heart, they are all screaming at you that sexual foolishness is the way to life. But Proverbs pleads with you to believe the words of our God, that sexual immorality is the way to death. This is a a very heavy topic. I realize these passages contain highly convicting words. I want to say here at the outset that we will find these words of our God are good and gracious. We will find that they are full of gospel hope for all who are in Christ. Five points this morning, all beginning with P. Usually we walk through the text in a somewhat orderly fashion. Instead, this time I've chosen to draw out five themes that I think we see throughout these three passages, all beginning with P. So first, the perversity. Second, the persuasiveness. Third, the preventative medicine. Fourth, the penalty. Uh, And fifth, the pursuer. I'll give them to you again as we walk through them. So first, uh, let's see what Proverbs says about the perversity of sexual immorality. What we see, especially uh, in chapter 5, the first of the three texts that we're looking at, is that sexual immorality is a perversion or a twisting of God's good design for sex. So sex itself is not the problem. Sexuality is a good part of God's creation. We see that all over Scripture. From Genesis chapter 1, where we're told that God made male and female in His image and told them to be fruitful and multiply. We see that in the Song of Songs, which is a biblical book full of love poetry celebrating sex and marriage. We see that in the New Testament teaching that marriage should be held in honor and that marriage is a picture of the love 
that Christ has for his church. Or the clear and consistent teaching of the Bible is that marriage and, and sex within marriage are good gifts from God, very good gifts of which he's not ashamed. Uh, in the first passage, which Paul read for us in Proverbs 5, after the father encourages his son, son, don't commit adultery. Uh, he encourages him instead to, to enjoy freely sex within marriage as the wise and godly alternative. So he uses the imagery of drinking and of thirst uh, to picture a loving spouse as a result of, of sexual enjoyment, mutual sexual enjoyment. Look there at verse 15 and following of chapter 5. The father says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, right? He's saying, enjoy your spouse. That, that might seem strange to us, but in the ancient Near East, to have your own private well was a, a huge blessing, a source of life. He says, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, that is to say, should, should your or possibly your wife's sexuality sort of be a public good? He says, no, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice, rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible just isn't embarrassed to say that sex in marriage is meant to be a good and pleasurable and regular part of marriage. Uh, this passage calls married people uh, to delight in one another physically. Look there at verse 19. I'm not going to read verse 19 again. Once was enough. Uh, but just look at verse 19. Do you notice that this young man is being called to pursue delight in his spouse's body, not to wish that his spouse had the body of someone else? Right? We, we tend to think of what delights us or what we like as kind of like a fixed thing. Right? What I like is what I like, and that's all I have to say about it. But if you're married, then these verses are a call to delight in the spouse that God has given you. The Bible makes very clear that marriage is not about romance. It's not even about sex. It's about covenant. But this passage, along with the Song of Songs, does call married believers to pursue intoxication with one another physically. The problem with sexual immorality is not passionate sexual pleasure. The problem is that sexual immorality is a perversion of God's design for the covenant of marriage. Two illustrations I've heard before are helpful here. The first is that sex is like fire, right? Fire in the fireplace. It's wonderful, life-giving. Fire anywhere else in your house. Disaster, right? As we'll see in a minute. Another illustration, sex is like relational superglue, right? It binds two people together. And that's wonderful so long as they are in an exclusive covenant before God to stick together permanently, Fire, superglue, they're great when used properly, disastrous outside of that context. So any appeal or any sweetness that sexual immorality has, it's actually stolen from God's good design. Sexual immorality is a perversion. So why, if it's a perversion and not the genuine article, does sexual immorality appeal so strongly to so many? 
How does it enslave so many people? Well, one reason is because of the second theme that we see uh, in these passages, which is the persuasiveness of sexual immorality, the persuasiveness. We're looking at three different passages this morning, as as I've said. There's one earlier passage in Proverbs chapter 2 that also speaks about sexual immorality. We talked about that several weeks ago. All four passages that talk about sexual immorality in Proverbs mention the smooth communication of the adulterous woman. They talk about her smooth communication. So let me read you Proverbs 2:16. That says that the son should embrace wisdom, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Chapter 5 verse 3, look For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, her lips, and her speech is smoother than oil. Chapter 6, verse 23, the father wants to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Chapter 7, verse 5, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. That Hebrew word translated smooth in each of these passages Regularly throughout the Bible, that word is associated with flattery. Sometimes that same word gets translated as flattery or flatterous or so-and-so flatters another person. Uh, In other words, what Proverbs is saying is that the temptation to sexual immorality talks to you. It sends you a smooth or a flatterous message. Sexual immorality appeals to you. It tells you something about yourself. Sexual immorality tells you that you are great, that you are godlike. Right? The, the appeal of sexual immorality is more than that it, it's fun. It's what it tells you about yourself. I once with a spoke, spoke with a believer from another church years ago uh, who had recently confessed to a secret pornography addiction for many years. And this brother said that in light of some counseling that he had received immediately after he sort of brought his sin into the light, he said that, that it became apparent to him that the reason that he had cherished this sin was that pornography gave him a sense of approval. He said that the actors in porn, they they looked at me like I was God. They told me that they existed for me. You can go ahead and devour me visually because you are God and I exist for you. In chapter 7, the third passage, which Larry read for us, we see the, the persuasiveness of sexual immorality symbolized by this seductive woman who meets a man in the wrong place at the wrong time in the dark. There in verse 10, the father says this. He's looking out his window, and he says, And behold, the woman meets him, this fool wandering in the street, or simple man wandering in the street. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street... Now in the market and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you. 
to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. You, 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 you're amazing. Wait a minute. Where was this woman? A few verses earlier, it says she's on every street. She's on every corner. She'll take any chump she can get. But when she finds someone, what does she say to him? You, 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 you. I want you. You're desirable. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. See all the trouble that I've taken to serve you? Sexual immorality flatters. And it also persuades with another age-old argument, which is that you can get away with it. Chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, the seductress speaking again. She says, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. What's she saying, right? She's saying, no one will know. We can do this with impunity. We'll get away with it. Or as it was put very long ago, you will not surely die. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk. She compels him. Friend, consider what the temptation to sexual immorality in any form even if it's only in your heart, consider what that temptation says to you. Consider what is so persuasive about it in order to fight it. Well, if if that's how persuasive sexual immorality is, what do we need in order to resist? What is the preventative medicine, point number three, the preventative medicine for sexual immorality? Well, if you've been here for any of our prior sermons in Proverbs, you won't be surprised that the preventative medicine for sexual immorality is to be persuaded by better words. All three speeches, all three passages start with the theme of the father once again begging his son to take his words into his heart as an inoculation against the lure of sexual immorality. The preventative medicine that we need to fight sexual immorality is God's word. Let me just give you one example. Chapter 6, verses 20 to 24. The father says, My son, keep your father's commandment and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline, or the reproofs of instruction, are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. There's a play on words at the beginning of chapter 5. The proverb says, uh, the father says, son, keep my wisdom so that your lips may guard knowledge, because the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, right? You want to resist the speech on her lips? Listen to mine. Take my words on your own lips. Brothers and sisters, how we fare when we meet temptation is impacted by whether or not previously our hearts have been shaped 
and molded by God's words. When sexual immorality seeks to persuade you, whether as the temptation to adultery or fornication or pornography or masturbation or lustful glances or sexual fantasy privately, your, your ability to resist is impacted by whether or not your heart has been persuaded by God's word. The preventative medicine for sexual immorality is a heart persuaded by God's wise words. That's the general truth, okay? Well, what, what's the content of those words, right? What are the words by which we need to be persuaded? Well, in one sense, it's all of Proverbs. It's all of God's word. But three specific things I want to point out in these passages, three specific preventative medicines that God wants to give us. First, first preventative medicine is this, you are my child. You are my child. Look, it's, it's not boilerplate Bible speak that these sermons start with the address, my son. Right? The, the seductress of chapter 7, she persuades her victims that they're precious to her. And it's a lie because her husband isn't very precious to her. So why should this chump that she just met be? She's not faithful. But Christian, can you see, we are inoculated against that appeal to the degree that we hear our Father say to us in Christ, My son, my daughter, you belong to me. You're precious to me. When we hear that with all of the affection and all of the responsibility that that implies. It's the first preventative medicine. Second preventative medicine. What does God's word tell us? It says, flee temptation. Don't just resist, but flee, right? These passages don't just say, hey, when you're walking down Temptation Street, be sure to be careful, right? It says to us in the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians, get out, flee sexual immorality, get away, don't go near, right? Proverbs chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, the father says, and now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And Christian author Bobby Jamieson puts it this way. He says, Proverbs calls the man a fool who passes along the street near the corner of the adulteress. Today, speaking of technology, the street corner is in your pocket. So put up whatever roadblocks and warning signs you need. Christian, where are the street corners that have led to sexual immorality for you? Wherever that is, don't go there. Don't keep going there and try to resist. Don't go there. Cut off whatever you have to. Get rid of whatever you have to. Seek whatever software, whatever accountability that you need. Don't, don't wait for someone else to come and ask you. You go find someone. You go find help. You go find a trusted brother and sister and, and drag your sin into the light. Right? The scene in chapter 7 that the father witnesses through his window. Did you notice the fool or the, the simple man who gets seduced? He's all alone. There's no one else there. Friend, if, if you're stuck in a pattern of sexual immorality, talk to a godly believer in your local church. Talk to one of the elders. Seek help in fleeing 
from sexual immorality. The third preventative medicine, third thing that God's word seeks to persuade us is really the main point of the passage, which is that sexual immorality leads to death. That's, that's our third sub-point of point number three, but it's also the fourth point of the sermon. I hope that makes sense. So, fourth point of the sermon, the penalty for sexual immorality. The penalty. We've seen the perversity, the persuasiveness, the preventative medicine, now the penalty for sexual immorality. Look there at chapter 5, verses 3 to 6. It says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Wow, free honey, free oil, right? Why not? Next verse, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. These three passages in Proverbs are replete with the message that the penalty, the horrible consequences of sexual sin bring death decay, a distortion of the life that God intends for his people to enjoy. Especially in that second passage from chapter 6, it it almost seems like crudely pragmatic. Uh, We're reminded of the social and even the economic consequences of committing adultery. The, The point is kind of, hey, listen, if you sleep with someone who's not your spouse, people will get angry potentially even lethally angry, and you will open yourself to a lot of shame and disgrace and hurt, and maybe even loss of property. That's, that's not the main thing, but Proverbs doesn't shy away from waving that in our face to deter us. Even, and even if you manage to hide your sin from the eyes of man, right, the father reminds his son there in chapter 5, verse 21, he says, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he's held fast in the cords of his sin. Doesn't that how sin feels? It doesn't just mess you up once. It ensnares you. It holds you fast. We've seen in prior weeks that in Proverbs, wisdom involves living with the grain of reality. Living in light of the way that God made the world to work. Well, that that also means that sin and foolishness, they massively tangle the threads. They throw a terrible wrench in the gears, and we get ensnared. Listen to this description of regret from a man who commits sexual sin and gets exposed in chapter 5, verses 9 to 14. The father has just told the son, keep far away from the seductress, verse 9, lest You give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Listen, if you're a teenager here or an almost teenager this morning, first, let me just say I love you guys. I'm so glad y'all are here. Listen, if you're playing with sexual sin, 
if you're looking at things you shouldn't look at, if you're, if you're starting to be inappropriately physical with, with someone, please let me put you in touch with an older Christian who has walked that road. And let me let them speak with you about the pain that it brings, the enslavement. It's not too late. You can get help. There is mercy and help and life for anyone who will drag their sin into the light to Jesus. Remember woman wisdom back in Proverbs 1? Woman wisdom warned us that if we don't listen to her, she'll laugh in our face when it blows up. In Proverbs 9, God permitting, we'll, we'll meet woman wisdom and her metaphorical counterpart, woman folly. Right? Woman folly is a metaphor, but interestingly, she, she looks a lot like the forbidden woman of these chapters. The literal adulteress looks like the metaphorical woman folly. Interestingly, just like woman wisdom looks like the Proverbs 31 woman at the end of the book. Well, I think Proverbs is suggesting to us here the, the principles that we're looking at today, the dynamics between the son and the forbidden woman, those are the dynamics between any person and any temptation, any person and woman folly, not just a literal adulteress, so to speak, right? These, these chapters are focused on adultery, and we're right to apply them to other sexual temptations, And I think we're also right to see in them how all temptation works, right? Temptation to greed and anger and all forms of sinful desire. Sin always offers honey and oil, but it leaves you with wormwood and sword cuts and death. Herman Bovink puts the destructiveness of sin this way. He says, sin makes us guilty and makes us unclean. It robs us of peace of mind and heart, is followed by regret and remorse, confirms us in the inclination, the listing toward evil, and gets us into a condition in which finally we can no longer offer resistance to the power of sin, but succumb to even the slightest temptation. Remember the penalty for sexual immorality and for all sin. In the day that we eat of it, we will surely die. It will bring death into our lives Friend, this is so heavy, and I would be unloving not to share this warning with you. If if sexual immorality is what defines you, not if you're a Christian who is fighting the fight of faith, but if sexual immorality is what defines you, then this is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We've seen the perversity that sexual immorality is. We've talked about its persuasiveness and the preventative medicine we need to resist. We've seen that its penalty is death. Fifth and finally, let me tell you about the pursuer. The pursuer of the sexually immoral. This morning, I began the sermon with a fictional account of a man and a woman alone who had just committed adultery. I want to close with another story. This not fictional, but true, about a man and a woman alone. 
the woman a known sexual sinner, an adulteress. This man and this woman meet each other at a well. The woman has come to draw water. She has her jar with her. And against the social convention of that day, the man strikes up a conversation with this woman. What does he want? Does he, like the other men in this woman's life, want to use her? Because he has the opportunity to in private. Does he, like we sometimes do, look at this probably beautiful woman and have the selfish sexual desire, hey, you exist for me. Well, you see, unlike any other person on planet Earth, this man could have looked at that woman and thought truthfully, you do exist for me because he was her creator. But that's not what this man named Jesus says to this woman. Instead, Jesus starts talking to this sinner, this sexual sinner, about what he wants to give her. Jesus says to this woman, this sexual sinner with a past and a present, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is speaking to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Give me a drink, living water, conversation at the well. What's all this water imagery, right? In Proverbs 5, those are the exact images used uh, for sex. Is that, is, that, is that what's in the background? No, you see, it's, the, it's actually the other way around, You see, sex and marriage are a created image of the living water that this man is talking about. The two of them continue speaking. We learn that this woman has had five husbands, that she's currently living with a sixth man who's not her husband. She has been so very thirsty for love and acceptance. And as Jesus reveals to this woman who he is, is and his grace for sinners like her she finds the living water that she had been looking for she finds the forgiveness and love and intimacy with the living god that she'd been trying to replace with people and as the woman leaves the well to go tell her friends John, who is not in the habit of listing unnecessary details, tells us she left her bucket. She left her bucket at the well. She wasn't thirsty anymore because she found the water she'd been looking for. Friend, listen, whoever you are and whatever place sexual sin has taken in your life, Through the gospel, Jesus Christ pursues you in order that he might forgive you and give you life. Listen, sexual sin brings death, and we are, every one of us, sexual sinners. Even if we haven't blown it in obvious and painful ways, our hearts are infected with the self-worship and the disregard for God that stands behind all sexual immorality. 
But in love and mercy, God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners like us. Jesus was the obedient son who every moment listened to his father's instructions. My son, don't go that way. He never did. But although his obedience had earned him life, Jesus died the horrible, shameful death, naked as a criminal on a cross. Right? If you think you feel the shamefulness of your sin, we don't know the half of the shame that we should feel for our sin before God. But the good news is that Jesus died to take the shame that we have earned We have misused our bodies in rebellion against God. Jesus Christ's body was broken for us that we might be forgiven. Three days after Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And now Jesus offers to forgive anyone who will turn to him from sin By faith, Jesus offers the love relationship with your creator, the living water that you were designed to need. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me urge you not to leave here without talking to someone about how to have this water, the water that Jesus gives that brings forgiveness and eternal life. God has promised that Jesus is coming back one day to judge the world. And when he does, those who don't know him will receive the full consequences of their rebellion against God. But the church, those who do know him, those who have been washed by him, when Christ comes back, they will receive him as their groom, the one with whom they will dwell in love forever. Listen, Christian, If you're not married, you're not likely to get married, don't worry about it. You have a wedding day coming. What Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the joy of that day will be sweeter and stronger than any of us experiences in this life. One day when we are finally free from the presence of sin, in the presence of our King, our Lord, our Lover, He will delight in us more than any groom ever delighted in his bride. We will know the love of which married love was only ever a shadow. All to the glory of his grace. Let's pray he'd grant us to walk in holiness. Until that day, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. That you pursue the guilty to forgive. That you pursue the thirsty to forgive to give living waters. Thank you for your death in the place of your people. Thank you for the gift of your new life and fellowship with God, your Father. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know that eternal life, who doesn't have that living water. Would you give them repentance and eternal life? I pray for those of us who do. Lord, would you teach us to satisfy our souls daily in the knowledge of you, in the knowledge of your love, and to grow in holiness, grow in turning our foot from the path that leads to death, that more and more we might walk in newness of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.